Hello and welcome to episode 128 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode is a bit tech-heavy here. We have a um, roundtable from our Progressive Mine Forum that we held back in October at the Mars Discovery District in Toronto, and the topic of the panel is automation. That's that's quite interesting here. What we have is Alicia Hyatt. She's the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mine and Journal. She's the moderator, and the panel is made up of five uh, men here. Miko Koivinen, Business Line Manager of Automation at Sandvik. Walter Sigelko, President and Founder of HLS Hardline Solutions. Daniel Lucifora, Manager of Mine Automation at Goldcorp. Jason Cox, Executive Vice President of Mine Engineering at Roscoe Postal Associates. And Doug Morrison, President and CEO of the Center for Excellence in Mining Innovation, SEMI. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. This is a group of 17 publicly traded companies involved in mineral exploration, development, and mining in the Yukon. You can visit their website at yukonminingalliance.ca, where you can find a summary of all the activities of their members. You can also follow the Yukon Mining Alliance on Twitter at at investyukon, all one word. Before we get into it, though, let's have a visit with our Northern Miner publisher, Anthony Vaccaro. He has a bit of news about the Northern Miner. I'm here with our publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, and we've got a couple of bits of news here within the Northern Miner. First off, some news about our upcoming Canadian Mining Symposium in London. Hi there, Anthony. What's going on uh, with our symposium? Hi, John. Thank you. So we're excited to get into the third annual Canadian Mining Symposium in London. This year it's going to be on May 22nd. That's a Wednesday. And at our usual prestige space, which is the Canada House, right on Trafalgar Square. For anyone that hasn't had a chance to visit Canada House, I highly encourage you to, whether you're at our symposium or not. It's something as Canadians to be really, truly proud of. It literally is uh, a space fit for a queen, as uh, the Queen of England was there for the reopening after the redesign in 2015. So very prestige event, and we work closely with the High Commission to the UK. And this year, we've over the years, we've managed to assemble a roster of some of the leading lights in the mining industry, and this year is no exception. We're very honored to have David Harkwell, the uh, chairman of the World Gold Council, and also the CEO of Franco Nevada. He'll be joined by Ira Thomas, president and CEO of Lucara Diamond. We also have Steve Letwin, the president and CEO of I Am Gold. And we're honored this year to have Peter Moroni, who's the chairman of Yamana Gold. So another fantastic roster. There'll be, as usual, a select group of juniors that have a Canadian focus that the Northern Miner, through our team here, has kind of screened. And there'll be eight juniors coming to present as well. And we're looking forward to having a a fantastic day to really highlight to the London investment community all that the Canadian mining story has to offer from an international uh, investor's perspective. That's great. And let me just add that, again, we will generate quite a bit of editorial content from that show, both the videos and the podcast material. We had Ross Beattie gave a fantastic speech earlier this year, and we uh, that was one of our highest uh, clicked podcasts. So, yes, yeah, it's looking to be another great year in May. Also, this is something internally within the Northern Miner. Now, I think a lot of people know that our parent company is called Glacier Media, and Glacier Media has some M&A activity that's involved in Northern Miner. So, Anthony, just tell us about that. Thanks, John. Yeah, we're very excited. A great uh, opportunity to to grow our reach for the Northern Miner Group. 
So as I'm sure our listeners know, the Northern Miner Group is also composed of the Canadian Mining Journal and Mines Handbook, as well as some other niche publications such as Diamonds in Canada and Exploration Trends and Development, amongst others. And that's going to continue to grow now as Mining.com will now be part of the family. So I, I do want to emphasize that each of these great brands will continue to leverage their unique expertise and strong brand power. We're not going to mess with that part. But by having these groups work more uh, synchronistically together, we're able to now reach an audience of roughly a half a million mining professionals with a stronger global presence than we have ever had before. Outside of our main Northern Miner Group office here in Toronto, we'll now have a larger office of roughly 40 people in Vancouver with the Mining.com group. And we also have offices now in Australia, the United States, and in South America. So very excited there. More global reach, more ability for our advertisers to, to reach more people, more fantastic content for our readers to more easily digest. And we think it's going to be a great opportunity. And we hope our readers are as excited about it as we are. Great. Thanks, Anthony. I'm here with Frick Els. I've uh, reached him by Skype, and he's on his uh, cell phone here in uh, Vancouver. And Frick is the editor of Mind.com. Frick, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. How are you this morning? Very good. In our previous little segment there, we had Anthony Vaccaro, our publisher, describing the purchase of, uh, by Glacier, our parent company, of the rest of Mining.com and how we're all going to keep our brands separate and, and but work together a little bit too. Frick, maybe just describe yourself and your editorial team, uh, what Mining.com is all about on the editorial side. Uh, yes. So Mining.com has been around since, Early 2011, it was me and Cecilia Jamazmi, who is uh, based in Halifax. Yeah, uh, Cecilia, uh, we're very happy that she's, uh, she can catch all the news early in the morning from Europe and in time for the market open uh, in New York and Toronto. So we are pretty much spread out. Yeah, we, we try and cover the globe uh, as much as possible. Our audience is... About 20% Canadian, uh, 30% US, and then from there it's uh, you know all the big mining jurisdictions around the world, Australia, and we also have a good following in Germany, which, uh, as many people know, is but a very uh, sort of active mining investment community. So uh, yeah, we are followed around the world. Right, and you guys are free, and then you also have feeds from Reuters and Bloomberg, so it's a great site to consolidate all the news, and then. Maybe just tell us your numbers. I, I, you're, I believe you're the highest trafficked uh, mining news website in the world easily, right? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, by quite a, quite a stretch. We uh, have about 400,000 unique visitors per month. Um, uh, and, you know, we, we see ourselves as a bit of a, a platform. So, you know, we have con- people contributing to the site. As you mentioned, we syndicate from the news wires. We have... Uh, Newsletter writers who um, you know who we uh, host on the site and yeah we we also try to cover all aspects of mining not just investment in junior mining companies you know we also try and tackle stuff like uh, the environment or uh, you know social issues in South America or uh, what is happening in Beijing politically so yeah we're trying to have as broad as broad as horizon as possible. Right, right. And I uh, just wanted to let our readers know, even though we're going to continue our separate 
businesses, as it were, do have this large office in Vancouver now, and then we have our large Northern Minor office in Toronto, and then we may share our stories a little bit. I, you may have seen um, a few issues ago. We had Frick, he attended the Nevada Copper Site visit um, in Nevada, and we weren't avail- available to go, although we were invited. So we can't go on all the site visits, unfortunately, so we ran uh, Frick's site visit, so that's a nice little bonus. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, we've already started doing that, but you know, I think um, mining.com and the Northern Miner and Canadian Mining Journal, it's, it's really complementary businesses. We've always had, you know, sort of a different uh, angle on, on the mining industry. Um, so working together, um, you know, we can, uh, we can complement each other in a, in a great way, uh, I would think. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, thanks, Rick. Have a good day. Uh, you too. Yeah, bye-bye. Before we get into the roundtable, we have a bit of uh, sponsored content here. Our first one is a sponsor spotlight, we call it. These are for the sponsors, the major sponsors of our Progressive Mind Forum. This week, we have Brad McBain. He's the general manager of the North America division for IMP Automation. So let's hear from Brad. I'm Brad McBain. I'm the general manager for the North American division of IMP Automation. And our primary function is an integrator. We take existing technologies that we've developed or that have been developed in the market and we combine them in an optimal way to assist in the sample handling at the mine sites and also in the laboratory process itself. One example would be infrared drying. Infrared drying is a technology that's been used in other markets to speed up the drying process and and certainly for samples coming wet out of a mine they need drying and and conventional drying is quite slow and that ends up being the primary roadblock to faster processing. So we brought in infrared drying in an automated context with all the sample tracking and and automated steps and, and weighing the sample during that process of drying. So you get the benefit of the technology and the benefit of automation. The second part would be new innovations. An example would be what we call fast inline fire assay, which was uh, developed out of our South African operations for some platinum mines in South Africa. Well, we've got a new application there called arrested cupellation, which without going into much detail, is a, a physical chemical process which allows us to get a 10 times reduction and the gold detection limits, so now you can use this fast fire assay process for tailings and exploration samples. We couldn't do that before. So that is a a new technology that we also automate that we've brought in into the laboratory sector. And one of the things that I've I've strived to do is be clear to the market that we do big and we do small. You know, they see all these large projects on our, our website, massive, massive port laboratories with huge infrastructure and, and you know, smaller labs that do 100, 150 samples a day, look at that and they go, I don't think that fits me. You're right, it doesn't fit you. But we do have solutions that fit smaller players as well. We do a range of a semi-automated to fully automated. We even do some mechanized systems, you know, simple things where it just has assistance for the operators to get a safer work environment and do some repetitive things faster without hurting themselves. One of the things that has come up repeatedly from people looking at automation is, what is my maintenance risk? What am I going to do with something that's unfamiliar to me and my operation if something goes wrong? Control Track is the backbone software uh, platform for using a an augmented reality system so that you put on these 
Visual Goggles. It's a, it's a Microsoft product. And you interface the software with external support, people who have worked on that piece of equipment, for example. And while you are looking at that equipment and servicing it at your lab or in the sample reception area, people are coaching you and you have access to previous examples of when uh, certain issues occurred with that equipment. And not only see what the problem is, but they can mark on the screen that the person wearing the goggles is looking at and circle, this is the part that you want to look at. And, and here is a component that you need to fix. And while I'm here, I'll throw up on the screen here a sheet that gives you some troubleshooting steps as you go along. Oh, and, and, and here's some parts, by the way, that you may need before you get started on this so you're not running back and forth to stores. So it's, it's a really interactive technology. Peter Kondos from Barrick gave a presentation two years ago, and I'll never forget what he talked about. It was a really big time for autonomous trucking. And he was up speaking, and he said, automation is great, but we have to remember that you're just automating the same thing you're already doing. So if you've got a herd of elephants hauling rock <laughs> to your stockpiles and back, and you automate those elephants, it's still just a herd of elephants. Automating what you already do can be a good thing. But investing some time looking at new technology in conjunction with automation, that's where the real opportunity lies. Our next bit of promoted content is what we call a Mining Minute. And this month we have four Mining Minutes with Cobalt 27 Capital Corp. Chairman and CEO, Anthony Milevsky. So take it away, Anthony. Now you've had a couple of very large deals this year. These are like two cornerstone assets, the Valet, a stream, and then the Ramu Nickel. You're still working on that. Can you just explain what those are? Yeah. So, you know, when we had our IPO in, in June of 2017, we were really just a stockpile of physical cobalt and a, and a few royalties. But what we told our shareholders that we were going to do and what we've ultimately done is, is create a, a streaming company with nickel and cobalt in it. And this year, we've done a couple royalties. We did one on Dumont, which is you know one of the largest fully permitted and ready-to-go nickel-cobalt projects in the world. And then Giga, which is Turnigan in British Columbia, which is another large-scale nickel-cobalt project, big nickel-sulfide project. But what's really been more interesting for our shareholders is that transition into streaming. And the two deals we did this year that uh, were really transformational was Boise's Bay, $300 million with Valet as our as a partner there and, and Silver Wheaton as our um, joint streamer to really uh, take the company forward and produce cobalt you know, for the coming decades. The second stream that we're in the process of closing now is, is actually a nickel cobalt stream on Ramu nickel mine streaming Highland Pacific's interest and in, you know, hoping to close that later this year, early next year. So those are the two big streams. And I think, you know, what's interesting about that and people don't realize, first of all, is, is you know, about half of the economics on Ramu are nickel, which we think is interesting, just the way things are going with chemistries. Mm -hmm. And two, Voises Bay is particularly interesting because we actually get the cobalt, the physical cobalt delivered to us, mm -hmm. and we're the agents of that cobalt. And so, you know, we think that creates tremendous strategic value. We have the stream, but we also control the product. And today, approximately 60% of global cobalt production is out of the DRC, you know, and there are issues there around ethical sourcing and, and um, child labor that need to be resolved. And so we think that over time, what you're going to see is a premium emerge for ex-Congo cobalt and Congolese cobalt. And so really having that product out of Boise's Bay going forward is going to be very interesting, especially as the adoption accelerates 
and car makers are really thinking about their supply chain. You know, where did this cobalt come from? Can we guarantee that this is an artisanal cobalt or that it wasn't mixed at the refinery? So, uh, you know, those are kind of the two big streaming deals combined with both the Dumont and the Turnigan royalties. Before we move on to our feature panel, uh, I thought I'd just mention this terrific article from the Wall Street Journal this week. It was uh, Barrett Gold Retreats from Digital Reinvention. It's a, this is a bit of a counterpoint to the whole innovation theme here. Of course, you had the merger with Rand Gold Resources happening uh, in January, and Mark Bristow is becoming CEO, uh, the Rand Gold head. So what they've done is they've already started slashing the uh, digital reinvention that Barrick's been going through the past few years. And some of this has already happened um, in the past few months. For instance, um, one of the assets on the block here is Barrick-owned Autech Innovative Extractive Solutions, a Vancouver-based company that specializes in testing mineral samples and processing. Their technology teams in Toronto head office were cut back quite a bit, as well as at their mining operations in Nevada. These were uh, started by Chairman uh, John Thornton, reading a paragraph. In recent months, Barracks has disbanded or shrunk technology-based teams at its head office in Toronto and at mining operations in Nevada. The teams were launched by Mr. Thornton, John Thornton, to develop things like software that tracked sensors on underground mining staff or collected data on processing equipment that could help predict when maintenance was needed. Progress on the projects had been slow. In November, Sam Chotai, the miner's chief digital officer and a former Silicon Valley executive, left the company. Barrett cut around two-thirds of his in-house coding hub in Elko, Nevada, and cut staff at sister site in Henderson, Nevada. Elko had been the epicenter for Barrett's ambitious digital transformation. And then in September, Barrett parted ways with his chief of innovation, Michelle Ash, who spoke at our Progressive Mind Forum two years ago. Uh, all but three of her Toronto-based team of 20 have left the company. So, so much for digital transformation at Barrick. And now we're coming back to the feature of this episode. This is the roundtable on automation from the Progressive Mind Forum with moderator Alicia Hyatt, the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mining Journal, and panelists Michael Koivinen of Sandvik, Walter Silko of Hardline Solutions, Daniel Lucifora of Goldcorp, Jason Cox from RPA, and Doug Morrison from SEMI. My name is Alicia Hyatt. I'm the editor of Canadian Mining Journal, as Anthony said. I'm very pleased to be here today and to be moderating our panel on automation to introduce our panelists. So closest to me here is Miko Koivinen. Miko is the business line manager, mine automation and digital solutions for Sandvik Mining and Rock Technologies in Canada. And just to note that Sandvik is our diamond sponsor for the Progressive Mine Forum this year. Next to, next to Miko is Walter Sigelkow, Sigelko, sorry, the president and founder of Hardline Solutions. 
Then we have Jason Cox. Jason Cox is Executive Vice President, Mine Engineering for Roscoe Postal Associates. And then we have Doug Morrison. Doug Morrison is the CEO of SEMI, the Center for Excellence in Mining Innovation. And on the end, we have Daniel Lucifora, the Manager of Mine Automation at Goldcorp. So I think we have a, a really interesting mix of perspectives here. Uh, from suppliers who are uh, leaders in automation to a mining company that's looking to implement that technology in the best possible way to a consultant who can speak to some of the practical considerations of uh, implementing autom automation and uh, an organization that's uh, an innovation catalyst in the industry. So I think we're going to have a really good discussion. Everyone in the room here is familiar with the promise of automation. Automation has, clearly has the potential to be transformative for the mining industry, but we're still pretty early in the process of adopting this technology. So just to start off, I'd like to ask all the panelists to give us a, a big picture view of the level of automation you're seeing currently in the industry, and how far adoption of this technology has advanced generally, and also what form it's taking at mine sites. We can start with Nico. Okay, thank you. So are we limiting this to underground automation? Okay. Okay, good. So, uh, so we've seen now in the past uh, couple of years a real growth in uh, not only in the interest on automation, but also mining companies really starting to adopt, adopt the technology. And it's, the technology has been around for uh, 14 years. We implemented the first automated loaders in Chile already in 2004. But really now the past, let's say two to three years, it's becoming not just an interest. Customers believe in the technology. There's so many references around the world that it's more about how you adopt it, how you implement it in your own applications rather than does the technology work. It, it does. Walter? Yeah, the, um, it has been around for, for many years now and it's been experimented with, with, uh, by many companies. The adoption now, or the acceptance of it, is, is not whether people are going to put it in, it's when can they put it in. There's very few mining companies now that you need to go in and do a presentation and convince them to do some form of automation uh, for different reasons. But at the end of the day, it's, it comes to a very simple problem, is we need to increase production safely. And one of the ways to do that, specifically in any mining situation, because it is a high-risk uh, um, industry, it's just get the people out from underground. And it's that simple. If you can do anything to get people out from underground, that's what needs to be done. I think from my perspective as a consultant, uh, maybe we see things slightly differently. Um, you know, we have the good fortune to see a really wide range of the industry where all over the world, different operators, you know, major producers, exploration companies, everything in between. And you know, apart from technology that's been around for 20 years, like remote scoop operation, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. You know, we're just getting started. It's you know, maybe 10% at best of operating mines that we see have some sort of automated equipment beyond just that remote scoop going into the open stoke. So you know, there's a lot of potential here. I would say that the, uh, the rate of adoption of automation in our industry is embarrassing, embarrassingly bad. Uh, we continue to want to automate in order to reduce cost or reduce risk. But the real opportunity for automation in the future is to increase productive capacity. That is the only reason to bring these technologies to the fore 
is to increase productive capacity. And if we don't do that, then we'll continue to mess around as we have for the last 20 years. We still have mines that don't have RFID tags on $2 million equipment unit. 25 years after supermarkets have been tracking every single apple in the store. That's where we sit in, in the realm of automation and tracking equipment and performance. So I don't think it's a very edifying picture, and I think it needs to change radically. Yeah, at Goldcorp, we, um, we operate both uh, underground and surface operations. And I'd say, as an industry as a whole, we're probably a bit more mature for automation in underground than we are in surface. We've adopted a lot of underground technology, and we're, we're pushing now and making inroads with automation for our surface operations as well. Um, and I'd say I agree with what the, the panel said, that you know I think apart from safety, which is a big driver, I think increasing capacity of our assets is the reason we'd want to get into automation more. And also, I just think that basically um, we are aware of the technology, but we're at the point where we need to create a, a business case to implement it, not just to implement technology for technology's sake, but to make sure we're going to be adding value, sustainable value to our operation. Where uh, you have seen automation being implemented, whether it's teleremote or semi-autonomous solutions in use, what value in your experience has automation delivered to mines? Nico? Uh, so I, I refer back to the video I showed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a relatively typical result what we're seeing from uh, well, at different mine sites. So again, recapping, so Heckler was saying 30% reduction in uh, maintenance cost, significantly less damage to the equipment when it's run by a robot, not by a person. Increased utilization, again, increased production. Safety, for sure. And also want to point out again the fact that finding mining people can be hard. So as so the video showed, a person who had no experience in mining, his dream was to be working for a mine, uh, actually joined a mining company as an um, autonomous truck operator. And even further, when we moved to having more remote uh, operation centers, so let's say we, have, we operate from Toronto, we don't even compete in the mining uh, labor market. We could hire people from Tim Hortons to run, run a system. Yeah, the, um, the interesting part is that, is that in these projects, there's always different pieces. So on, on the video from Sandvik, the, the autonomous truck has to dump somewhere. So our company does the tele-remote systems to actually run the rock breakers that, that the trucks dump on. The Muscle White Mine is, they contacted us last week to get rid of, or a couple of weeks ago, they want to get rid of all the old standard remote control system because the entire fleet is tele-remote now. And they're actually running some of them from the... Uh, their operations uh, center in Thunder Bay now. And those are important facts because our company's only, so you tr Trontonians will get a kick out of this one or you, anybody's from Vancouver, but our office is only 20 minutes outside of Sudbury. And we couldn't get programmers to drive 20 minutes to come to work, so we had to actually get an office inside Sudbury. You know, the new generation of people, they want to be home with their kids. Uh, somebody going to an, an operating station in Thunder Bay or in Toronto or Vancouver, You'll go home and get, go to your kid's ball game that night. That's what they want. That's what people want. And that's where, that's where it's moving to. It has to move. That's an interesting value add. I hadn't thought about that one. But uh, safety always comes up as a big one. And in an, in an industry where we're very focused on safety, and I generally put a lot of thought into it and do a reasonable job, you might think that any gains there would only be incremental. 
but there are definitely situations where it can be a big leg up. You know, we're working on some high-grade uranium projects right now, and when you start thinking about radiation exposure and that sort of thing, you know, automation has a huge leverage on that situation in the, in the safety realm. And then cost and productivity side, you know, we do a lot of work in countries that don't have a tradition or don't have labor laws that allow 12-hour shifts. So if you're working with eight-hour shifts, your effective working time in a deep mine is so small that there's a huge advantage to be gained there if you can get that time you know, effectively utilized. Yeah, time is the most viable commodity of all. We talk about money, we talk about mineral resources, but time is the most viable commodity that exists because you don't ever get it back. When you've lost the time to produce ore or produce value, there's no way to get that back. You can get more money back, you can get more people, you can't ever get the time back. And negative time, lost time, compounds just as quickly as interest rates do. So it gets worse and worse and harder and harder to recover from the time that you lost in not making moves to progress your operations and to generate more value. It's a myth that we're actually trying to automate in order to lay people off. Our industry faces a demographic cliff in every aspect of its operations. In terms of the replacement rates for engineers and geologists and the other scientists that we need, it's a huge cliff that's going to arrive. We need to automate in order just to have our minds have capable people to run the equipment that we have. It's not that we're going to lay people off, it's can we automate fast enough to still have experienced people left in our operations to help the new people coming in. And the new technology will radically change the demographics of our business. We don't need to worry about white-haired old guys like me choosing to, to hire women and minorities, etc. The skill sets that the technologies of the future will require are completely different from the skill sets we have now. And that will mean drawing on a workforce that is radically different from the workforce profile that we have now. We simply will not be able to attract enough of our traditional workers, even from Tim Hortons, to come and do the things that we have done up until now. So the shift in thinking has to be a complete reversal of what we're thinking now. And for me, the biggest step of all is to move away from a technology platform that was based on human interactions and begin to design automated systems that were designed from scratch to be autonomous. If we simply auto automate the equipment that we have, we are locking in all the inefficiencies that we have built up and relied on for the last 35 years. We need to radically shift what we design and how we design it and design it as an autonomous system, not a slightly modified human intervention system just because we're losing the humans. We will need humans to do really important tasks, but they're not going to be the same humans that have done the tasks up until now. So a radical shift is coming, but only if we can free ourselves from the mental shackles that we've had for decades. Decades, literally decades. Rio Tinto started automating 28 years ago. This is not new. In no, no other aspect of your life can you say something that we started doing 28 years ago is a novelty, is innovative, or anything else. Our rate of adoption of these kinds of technologies is nothing short of embarrassing. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think what we ultimately need to do is you know, change the process to take advantage of the autonomous solutions as best we can. 
just for the autonomous solutions we've been working with so far, which are just pieces of the process, not the whole thing. We believe the, the biggest potential is related to increases in utilization and productivity. So we're going to see those assets producing more over more time, but also producing better over that time. So for instance, we've got an um, autonomous drill program that we're running at our, our site in Mexico, Peñasquito. And then we're also um, just embarking on it at Porcupine as well in Ontario. We think that we can actually uplift the base machine from its present status to 1.34 times that manned machine through the introduction of automation, which is a big improvement for us. And, and it will translate to a lot of improved productivity. And then also the, the safety element to stop people from working in an unsafe environment more often than not. And then also, I think it's a big differentiator as far as recruiting the next generation of operators and, and workforce. I think the jobs aren't going to go away. They're just going to change to um, probably more, more tech-centric. But I think in the end, it'll be you know, better jobs for the employees as well. Uh, Daniel, I'm going to start with you again for the next question. Can you speak a little bit uh, about the limitations of the automated technology that you're trying out at Old Corp sites? Sure. Yeah, I think presently a big limitation is that it is just pieces of the overall process. So we have to kind of recognize that and, and make sure we put it in a position to succeed. Also, another big limitation is uh, interoperability. You know, we're at the point now where each vendor is offering a solution, but they're not really offering a whole mine to mill solution. So sometimes it's difficult to get the, the pieces to play nicely together. In addition, I'd say there's the common logistical stuff like GPS coverage, mine site, wireless network communication becomes even more paramount. So before when we were able to run, and, and GPS is a good um, example actually, you were able to run previously with no GPS, then we introduced GPS, and now if you don't have GPS, often the, the shovel or the drill has to be down and you're losing production. So the same is true of, of automation when we start to introduce that. If the solution's not working, that's a, that's a productivity um, that we're losing for that time that it's, it's not working. Also, a big one is for a change management is the training. So you know, we, we introduced these solutions at the sites, and they have great potential. But at the same time, we're counting on often the, the same number of resources to support this new solution in addition to all the other tasks they were previously doing, which, um, which isn't really a recipe to succeed. So I think that's a big one. And then you know, overall change management, just make sure that the site is, is embracing the technology and using it in the right way and having the right expectations so that it's in a position to succeed. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the expectations of our equipment is another thing that's been you know, a huge problem for many years. Nowhere else in our lives do we expect a 65% utilization rate for a piece of equipment. Yeah. You, wouldn't expect, you wouldn't accept that for your car, I've, I've and you certainly wouldn't accept 50. it for airplanes. <laughs> you know, that's a really bad thing, 65% utilization, because it means nobody's going anywhere or going down really fast. So. That what that actually has meant for us is if we need six scoops to be operating, we need to buy nine so that we've constantly got six. Are you kidding? This is the cost of inventory in the system because the process is ineffectual. And we've locked ourselves into this way of thinking because of where we come from. And that's the fundamental shift that has to take place. It's not simply a question of automating the kinds of things we do now and get rid of the steering wheel and get rid of the seat no. Go back to the fundamentals, analyze what the system requires, what are the system constraints, and design an autonomous system that will produce the levels of performance we need to have. So we don't just go for 1.3, 1.5, which is a good result for the equipment that we use. 
But your typical LHD will produce between 100 and 200 tons an hour. There are systems you can buy off the shelf that will move over at 400 tons an hour. And we can easily redesign those to produce 800 or 1,200 tons per hour. If you want to produce 100,000 tons a day from a block cave underground copper mine, and you do, because if you want to have enough copper to replace carbon in the economy, that's where you're going to be, how you're going to be able to do that. You can't do that with the kind of equipment that produces one to 200 tons an hour. That's crippling. And it cripples the whole process. And worst of all, as Rick just said earlier, it cripples our industry's credibility in the eyes of investors. And that is what's driving our business to the margins of society. That's why we can't actually hire really, really clever people, you know, smarter than me, to come and work in this business because our young people think, you guys are just crazy. Why would, it, why would anybody want to go and do that? We're not a sexy business. We are actually a very sexy business. And I've lived my whole life in this and I love it. But we need to turn this around because we can't continue to produce fossil fuels the way we have and use them. The only thing you can replace fossil fuels with in our economy is metal. You have to have the energy. The energy becomes electricity. Move electricity means copper and all the other fancy specialized metals that you need to make all the fancy pieces of technology work. We heard the, the story about cobalt today. This is true across the board. We need to make this change and our industry has to become in the forefront of making that change, not the laggard as we currently have been for the last 20, 30 years. Maybe I'll attack this one from the other end, but uh, you know, at, at RPA, half of our business is helping mining companies develop projects and operate more efficiently. And the other half is on the lender side where we're talking to people investing in mining and they want certainty around risk. And this is a real break on automation. You have a base case without automation where you have some certainty around the engineering and the cost estimation and you know what you're gonna get. And all the bankers are really happy with that. You know, that can be proven. There's comparables everywhere. We can get that. And then you say, well, you know, we're going to automate and, and we're going to be twice as good or, and it's all a little airy-fairy and, you know, tell me who's doing that and you have trouble pointing to it and getting that certainty. And that's where, you know, the equipment you manufacturers are leading the way developing these options and the major mining companies are leading the way making that investment, being the early adopters, trying something out because if they can prove up that benefit, they can apply it across many different mines. And then the smaller fry can maybe grab onto that and go to the lenders and say, hey, you know, this is going to work. This is my new base case. And that, I think, really is what's needed to unlock this and, and have it propagate through many more mines than, you know, just the majors. Um, unfortunately, we only have a few minutes left. We've got about five minutes. So I want to move on to the next question, which is what are some of the, the keys to successful implementation of of automation at mine sites. Um, maybe Walter, you could start. It's the uh, buy-in at every level. The top people in the mine, you know, they sit at meetings like this and they listen to the talk about automation and they say, we have to put this in our mind. But if the people at the mine site, right down to the, the janitor who cleans the room that you put the station in is not, doesn't buy into it, you're not gonna have success. Now, because of automation in general in the mining industry, it, takes in your communication systems, your machines, your you know, hydraulics, uh, electronics, everything else, 
the breed of people required to maintain these systems does not exist. So training these people and training from the ground up is, is a very important part that we have to do. And that's one of the things that's difficult today in, in uh, implementing uh, these new systems into the mines. Then you run into another problem that a lot of the mines are very remote. So when you get a guy trained right up, he works for a mining company and he happens to fly out to Timbuktu for two weeks in, two weeks out, you train him on a very high skilled level and next thing you know he's no longer working for that mining company, he's moved on to something closer to, to home. So you no sooner get somebody trained and you, gotta, you just got to have an ongoing uh, training program. That, that is one of the biggest hurdles that we're running into today, both on, on, from the vendor side and from the mining side. Miko, do you want to speak to some of the keys to successful implementation? Yeah, just adding, adding to the previous, so where I've seen some projects fail is uh, it's really how it's structured, very project-focused, uh, very successful project implementation, the project team focusing on technology. Everybody's focused only on the, on the project, but once the project is handed over to the operations who has not been part of the project, it starts to fail. So it goes from resulted up here Suddenly now, let me get a call. What happened? Luckily, not ha that doesn't happen all the time, but it, it, it does happen. Mm -hmm. So again, it's part of the change management approach. And maybe just to wrap up, um, do you have any advice for companies who have been either skeptical about automation or are unsure how to start? Start start with Mika. Yeah, so technology works. It's available. Uh, think big. If you have your doubts, start small, step-by-step -step approach, but you can take the steps pretty fast once you've taken the first step. There's many ways to enter the, uh, the automation, and, and we're talking a lot about the mobile equipment and the mines and the moving equipment, but there's many other parts that, uh, that can be automated through the process. There's, uh, you know, so we have mines with locomotives. Uh, you know, this kind of loose term of automation compared to teleoperation, but with uh, an automated piece of equipment, you still have to get the ore from wherever it dumps to surface. You need to get it broken across a, a grizzly. There's so many other pieces of the puzzle. And uh, companies just, I think the vendors and, and companies kind of got to work together a little better to uh, kind of do their part really well and get the systems working well. In his talk uh, earlier, Sean mentioned the, the level of cooperation across companies in the industry. And I think that's a huge strength and uh, you know, I can personally attest that uh, Agnico walks the walk there. I, you know, we've brought someone to to see the rail there at Goldex and uh, had a very honest discussion about what's working and what's not, and how it it might be better applied in the next round. And and that's a huge advantage. Anyone considering this should grab onto that cooperation and reach out to someone who's doing something similar. For anybody who has even one scintilla of doubt of the value of automation of equipment, dismiss that, start now. You're already way behind the eight ball and you need to get moving forward faster. And the faster you move forward, the more productivity you will gain. And eventually you'll flip over to what I might call my side, the dark side, which is to design autonomous systems from scratch to make your productivity sing. And that's what we have to do. Fixed infrastructure where we are. It's, it would be nice if we could find minerals all over the place, conveniently located to an urban center near you, but that's not true. We have to produce the minerals where we find them, and it has to become autonomous with minimal human intervention at site. 
Daniel, you get the last word. All right, yeah, so I, I would say that the biggest thing for me is make an informed decision. So um, understand what your needs and requirements are um, at your site, in your operations, at your overall company. And also understand clearly what um, the systems you're considering can deliver. Um, you know, understand what their limitations and the requirements from, from you to maintain them are. And then if there's a fit, then by all means, you know, move forward with automation. Felicia, let's just take one from Slido over here instead of opening up to the crowd because people have been actively participating, which is great. I think the top question is a good one. I'll read it out. Um, I'm only going to ask one person to respond, though. So whoever wants to raise hand because we're short on time, so we just have time for one response. A company is proposing automation for your operation. What's the first factor you look for to decide not to proceed with that automation? I mean, Doug, you're going to say there's no reason. <laughs> Absolutely, no. No. The fact is, your mine is getting deeper every single day. You're mining a fixed asset. As you go deeper, your costs go up. If you're not changing your production process to be cheaper and faster, you're eroding your return on investment every single day. Keeping your process the same in a deepening mine means eroding your return on investment. This is not a risk, by the way. This is an absolute guarantee. So the risk that you think of is our perception of risk that's mistaken. In our business, in a deepening operation with a fixed asset, depleting a fixed asset, risk is doing the same thing day after day after day. That's the risk. In fact, it's not a risk, it's a guarantee of poorer performance. If you're not innovating and improving your performance, you're losing ground every single day. And that's why you should start yesterday. Just to answer the question, it's, it's, it's very simple. If an automation project is presented and it has no payback, your shareholders are going to fire you. <laughs> so that, that's what it has to be. There has to be a reason to put automation in, and it has to be financial. I've been doing this for a long time, and if it's based purely on safety, it, it may do it. It may work for a little while, but it's not going to be, it won't keep going. If it's profitable, if it puts more, you know, more muck at the end of the, up on surface at the end of the day, the shareholders are happy and then they'll invest in the next project. So even as a, even as a supplier, I always look, I want to know where the payback is. And if there's no payback, it's going to fail. Thank That's it. Everyone. Okay, thanks so much, guys. <laughs>